0: Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organized crime around the world. This episode is called Italian Mafias in Europe, From Text to Context.
1: Okay, so welcome everyone, and uh, um, wherever you are in. Uh, um, well, I sa- exactly. I already see the good morning from Mara. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending from on where you are based at this stage. Um, so we, I'm going to chair uh, this session, uh, which was initially going to be chaired by Margherita Bettoni, who is unable to join us. Uh, so I will both. Um, you know, chair and uh, speak a little bit as well. So this is a pre-arranged panel, uh, and it's a panel that uh, we put up um, because we we you know we wanted to have a coherent line of um, uh, speech essentially, and we just wanted to make sure that we made sense in uh, one when we speak to one another in about these topics. So the topic is very general and is Italian mafias in Europe, but obviously we and we've been. Um, all very much um, engaging with research also outside of Europe. So I'm hoping that for the discussion, we can also go a bit farther than that. Um, And we have three presentations uh, today. So one is, so Francesco Calderoni from uh, Transcrime from Universita Cattolica of Milan. Hi Francesco, Francesco is gonna start us off because he was, um, uh, he he headed a project um, back in 2016, 17, if I remember correctly the year, um, on uh, trying to map the Italian mafia presence in uh, some uh, documents, official documents in Italy. Uh, and obviously this is what the from text uh, of our title means. So Francesco's research uh, together with his colleagues in transcrime will give us a little bit of an understanding of, of what kind of sources, what kind of data, what the limitations of the data when we look at Italian mafias abroad with a specific focus on Europe. And then um, myself with Alice Rizzuti, who is now at the University of Hull, but um, was a PhD student at Essex and a research associate at Essex, uh, together with me uh, for the Project Crime Countering Regional Italian Mafia Expansion, yes, which finished in 2021, um, where we basically just, again, tried to uh, look at some of the text and at the, some of the context of Italian Mafia's uh, pre- presence in, um, um, well, let's say seven countries if we can, can consider the UK, uh, which we did look at. And we finish off with a case study in, uh, with Zora Hauser, who is um, a research fellow at the University of Oxford, where she's also completing completing her uh, PhD and currently on a um, postdoc uh, project as well. Uh, and Zora is going to talk to us about her uh, PhD research uh, in Germany on the Endrangheta specifically. So, So I think the three presentations fits very well with one another because we start with the broader uh, data and we look at some more specific um, peculiarities of the fight on Italian mafias cross border. Uh, and then we end up with a, that with zooming in into one of the, of the case studies, in, into an important case study, probably the most important, uh, as we, we will become clear, Germany is quite a peculiar location. Um, so uh, each presenter, each presentation will have 10 to 12 minutes, with 12 being the absolute maximum. I will mute you if you don't shut up. And so that we, I hope we will have uh, enough time for, que- for discussions. As for the discussion, please put your uh, questions either in the chat or in the QA. I will monitor them both. Uh, and uh, without further ado, Francesco, the floor is yours.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Anna, for this uh, nice introduction. Uh, let me share my screen now. I hope you see it. Um, OK, uh, so our presentation is on Italian mafias Abroad, Evidence from Italian Anti-Mafia Agencies Reports 2000-2017. Um, so basically, this is the kind of message we normally receive, especially in the in international medias. So the idea is that Italian mafias are able to move abroad, they're, they're easily moving across the world, and they're becoming global. So actually, uh, evidence from research from different uh, strands of research suggests a more definitely more complex picture. So uh, with our presentation and with my presentation, I would like to address these questions: Which countries have the strongest presence of the Italian mafias? What are the most frequent activities of Italian mafias abroad? Are there differences across the types of mafias and countries? And uh, what are the most important relations among ma- type of mafia countries and activities? So in a nutshell, our results will show uh, that the presence is concentrated in a few countries, that drug trafficking is still the main activities uh, for references to the mafias uh, abroad, that we have four mafias, and they somehow exhibit different patterns and that we can suggest that different factors play a role in determining the presence of an Italian mafia abroad, including geographic proximity to Italy, criminal opportunities connected to the specific destination country, and factors such as migration and cultural relations, I would say, especially for distant countries. So as anticipated, this is an update of previous research uh, that was published in the European Journal of Criminology with a number of co-authors that I would like to acknowledge. Uh, the initial research focused on the time period between 2000 and 2012. Now I have updated the data up to 2017. And we will be uh, focusing on four uh, Italian mafias or, or types of mafias, actually. So the Ndrangheta, the Neapolitan Camorra, the Sicilian Mafia, so Cosa Nostra, and Apulian mafias from Apulia, and we will also uh, assess the presence according to six different types of activities that are the stable presence, which is whenever there is uh, evidence of an established formal organization on a country, generic presence, drugs, money laundering, and the legal economy, fugitives and arrest, and other illicit activities. So we extracted information from uh, Italian anti-mafia authorities reports, which are publicly available, thousands long pages published every year, and and whenever there was a reference to uh, a foreign country, we extracted information, the text, as uh, Anna said. And we coded this information. This is the results of our uh, the first results of our uh, analysis. We have uh, 2,200 uh, references overall uh, for uh, 88 countries, but about tw- 2,000 references actually concentrate in just 22 countries. And if you see, actually, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, Albania, France, United States, Canada have more than 100 references. So it's a pretty uh, strong concentration here. We also divided the presence by type of mafia. The, the mafia which reports uh, the uh, highest numbers of references, of course, is the Ndrangheta with about 42% uh, of the references, then followed by the Camorra and Cosa Nostra, and of course late, the last one, the, the Apulian mafias. And also the presence of the mafias across countries is somehow correlated. The Correlation is positive and is particularly strong uh, for the Ndrangheta and Cosa Nostra, which suggests that the Ndrangheta and Cosa Nostra tend to be present with the same intensity on the same countries, whereas, for example, uh, the presence of the Camorra and the Drangheta is correlated only at the lower level. So they are normally present in the same countries, but with some more differences. For example, uh, the Camorra is very much present in Spain, about 40% of the reference to the presence of the Camorra abroad concentrated in Spain, but at the same time, uh, for the Drangheta, we have a very strong presence in a number of countries, of course, Germany, that uh, we'll discuss later, uh, France, Canada, Colombia, Switzerland, and Australia. We also have countries that have a more balanced presence. For example, the Netherlands, we have uh, some, somehow a significant presence from all the four types of mafias. Uh, and also the United States that have a strong presence from both the Sicilian mafias, so Cosa Nostra and Andranita. Then we have uh, peculiar presences like Albania has a strong presence from the, the Apulian mafias. that points to a geographic pattern because of course Albania is just across the Adriatic Sea uh, from Apulia. And let's focus now on activities. Well, about uh, 38% of the references uh, uh, talk or refer to the, the drug trafficking. Then we have the generic presence and uh, involvement in money laundering and the legal economy. So this is uh, there are some changes from the previous research. So the previous uh, research, we, we focused uh, on time period between 2000 and 2012. Uh, Drug trafficking is stable. It's stable in both samples. It's about 38 percent of the references. So somehow the drug trafficking still plays a major role, an important role for all uh, the mafias, Italian mafias. At the same time, there is a decreasing uh, frequency of generic presence and fugitive arrest, whereas we have an increasing stable presence, references to stable presence, of course, and money laundering and the legal economy. As you see here, the presence by type, of, uh, by type of activity and type of mafia are somehow different. We see uh, that for all four mafias, uh, drug trafficking is indeed the most frequent uh, activity, but we have only the Drangheta that has a, a sizable amount of references to the stable presence. So when a formal mafia type organization or a clan or a group, subgroups, uh, call it the way you want it, uh, is present abroad, And also, for example, another example is the Apulian mafias are the only ones who have a large share of reference to other illicit markets that normally uh, include references to counterfeiting and the trafficking of illicit cigarettes. Uh, The last slides uh, are somehow trying to make a little bit more of the complexity of the data. This approach is is a multiple correspondence analysis. So we plot our activity points, country points, and mafia on a two-dimensional space. And uh, the fact that the two points are closer suggests that they are more strictly related in the data. You should think about this analysis like a correlation for categorical variables. And it's very used in sociology, was spearheaded by Bourdieu, so uh, I think it helps a little bit to inductively uh, uh, identify some patterns. The idea with this analysis is then that you have somehow to draw clus- clusters, identify clusters of points together and understand a little bit how the, 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 the data the data uh, is shaped. So these are the four cl- five clusters that I have identified. Let me quickly review them. The first one here below includes the Camorra, and illicit drugs, and fugitives arrest in red, and the number of countries. So it suggests that the Camorra is more closely related to the illicit tra- drug trafficking and the presence of fugitives and arrests abroad, and the countries that are more closely involved with this are the Netherlands, Spain, Colombia, and then a bunch of other, of other countries that uh, are also from South America, suggesting that they are connected with uh, cocaine trafficking especially. And a smaller cluster here is interesting. It's Cosa Nostra is connected with generic presence, France and Belgium, somehow suggesting that the Cosa Nostra is also close, yes, to the drug trafficking, but has a very maybe generic presence in two uh, countries, such as France and Belgium, that has shared important uh, cultural, social, and somehow geographical connections uh, with Italy. Then we have a cluster up here in the first quadrant that includes the Drangheta stable presence, and money laundering. And the countries that are more concerned with this cluster are Germany, of course, we'll talk about that later again, Canada, United States, Switzerland, and Australia. Then somehow I wanted to emphasize also a cluster, kind of a cluster with money laundering, Switzerland, San Marino, and Romania. Especially Switzerland, and San Marino are very important for their connections for the banking financial industry. And of course, they are uh, very close, if not included, in the Italian territory. So it's not surprising. And also when uh, reference to money laundering and the legal economy pop up, they also come up in, in our data. And the last cluster uh, is quite distant from other points. Suggest that the Apollyon mafias that are in this cluster are somehow behaving or they, they show patterns that are separated from the other mafias. They are connected to the red dots, uh, suggesting illicit other activities that, as I said before, comprise illicit cigarettes and counterfeiting. And the countries that are involved in this cluster are Albania, Montenegro, and Greece, which are on the Adriatic coast or the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and close to Apulia. At the same time, China maybe as a source for counterfeit goods or for illicit cigarettes, and the UK as normally as a destination for, for such goods. So wrapping up, um, again, uh, I think the the data that we have and the update that we had just presented show that indeed the Italian market presence is not freely uh, available in all countries. Italian markets do not go around in any country in the world. They are concentrated in 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 a set of few countries. Um, uh, that still drug trafficking is a a, a very important activity uh, for Italian mafias, that the four mafias exhibit somehow different patterns that of course uh, the next presentation will um, uh, assess in uh, greater detail, and there are different factors that probably affect the presence of Italian mafias abroad, including geographic proximity, uh, criminal opportunities and connections with the drug trade for example, and also migration cultural connections with Italy especially for distant countries such as the US Canada, Australia, or Brazil. So thank you very much. That's it. I hope I stayed my time.
1: You did. Uh, thank you, Francesco. You actually were a, even a bit earlier, which is great. Wow. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so while you stop sharing your screen, I'll invite Alice to um, join me here on the stage so we can um, proceed with our presentation. Um, Alice will share the the slides uh, and I will uh, start and then leave the space to her. Um, so what we are uh, talking about uh, here is basically a follow up study, essentially. So um, what we uh, did in our Mafia around Europe, uh, the reflection from the crime project. So first slide, Alicia, please. Um, okay, uh, so. Yes, the project. So the project is essentially, as I said, uh, was uh, started in the middle of the pandemic. So we had to kind of readapt it. And it was uh, led by myself at the University of Essex um, and with Alice, Uh, which in the meanwhile completed her PhD and became a research associate also at Essex. Um, It was a project which was run in partnership uh, with Eurojust Italian Desk and Europol Italian Organized Crime Unit, uh, which essentially helped us to define the project's um, scope, in a way, and start off with the database. Um, What we looked at was um, Secondary data, first of all. Uh, so it was uh, the project was done in two phases, um, and the first phase was open source and archival documents, such as the Direction and Investigative Mafia report to to per year for the past five six years, arrest warrants. Then we did have, um, and we did manage to to get from different sources, and uh, in, we interviewed at the very beginning of the project some experts uh, on different uh, countries that we could identify as uh, our country of choice, and And then we uh, completed overall 40 interviews with um, law enforcement, including law enforcement as well, with specific anti-mafia units in the countries uh, we Identified where there was an Italian, obviously, anti-mafia unit. Whenever there wasn't an Italian uh, anti-mafia unit, we talked with liaison officers of the Italian police or the Guardia di Finanza um, in the, um, seconded in the in the country of the of interest. So we focus on six countries out of the Eurojust uh, Europol selection, uh, as uh, Alicia will tell you in a little bit more detail. With Italy as a, obviously as a parallel country in a way, and we chose to add that at the very end of with Brexit Britain, just because it poses some more interesting questions for research. Um, So Alice, if you want to start off. uh, Yes,
3: so um, the way we frame mafia mobility, the mobility of uh, Italian regional mafias in these uh, selected countries, we try to look at um, how uh, the historical presence of Italian mafias changed uh, abroad. um, And it's a pattern that was very interesting, especially in relation to certain countries. We looked at the definition of Italian mafia, which, of course, uh, by nature is a very, very Italian centric definition. And we saw uh, how this was opposed to the uh, or additional to the definition of, of organized crime and whether some of these jurisdictions were adopting the definition or not, also in terms of terminology. Uh, We looked, of of course, at migration studies and globalization studies. We saw if um, there were um, uh, patterns related to alien conspiracy theories and ethnicity traps. Uh, And uh, most of all, we saw that uh, Italian mafias, as Anna will tell you uh, a bit more later, um, very much um, moves abroad following a pattern of uh, opportunity or as we called it, um, conditioned opportunism. Um, of course, the limitations of the study are sort of obvious. The study most probably suffers from a sort of ethnocentric relativism. First of all, the fact that both Anna and I are Italian. The fact that um, we, especially at the start, mostly interviewed uh, Italian um experts, and at the very start also Italian law enforcement and prosecutors, uh, which of course um, sort of conditioned the the study um, because of institutional perception and the bias. However, this is something that we balanced as uh, um, most as possible uh, with the um, interviews with experts and law enforcement, as Anna said, from the other countries, uh, which often provided a clearer overview, uh, more complete, even sort of challenging the results that were coming coming from the Italian data. Um, Of course, this is only a starting point. Uh, um, The idea behind this report was to offer a first methodology to read the the presence, the expansion of Italian regional mafias uh, in Europe, especially in these countries. More specific uh, research on each country, of course, needs to be be conducted. Uh, As Anna said, we focused on Germany, Spain, Switzerland, Romania, Belgium, uh, because these are the first six countries that Eurojust gave us uh, that require more uh, judicial assistance and cooperation from Eurojust and from Italy. Uh, Focusing then on the UK, uh, because we wanted to maintain also this focus about Brexit Britain, also because of the timing in which we conducted the the analysis, the the study. And the Netherlands, because um, according to Eurojust and Europol data, is a country in which Italian mafias seem to be uh, on the rise. Regarding the final report, it's divided into three main uh, themes or or aspects. We um, give a summary of the current criminological map of the presence of uh, Italian regional mafias in these seven countries, and we added also Italy uh, to complete the overview and to better compare the different ways in which mafias manifest in Italy and most of all abroad. Uh, We also provide an overview of the applicable criminal law in these uh, jurisdictions, specifically in relation to the participation in organized crime groups in the form of conspiracy membership participation, uh, drug importation, drug trafficking um, um, legislation, and money laundering, with a specific focus that was also um, discussed with you, with you just looking at transnationality as an aggravating factor uh, for uh, organized crime uh, activities and um, uh, yeah practices um, and um, the core actually of, of the report we looked at some specific challenges in judicial cooperations across these countries that were possible to address also thanks to these interviews with experts from from each countries. Um, I will try to be as quick as possible uh, with this overview. I will not tell you anything about Germany because Zora will focus on that in the next presentation. Um, Regarding Switzerland, we saw that the most um, predominant um, Italian mafia group, uh, Italian mafia actually, uh, active in in Switzerland is Andrangheta. Money laundering is key as an activity due to the uh, relevance of the banking sector in in Switzerland. However, what we found that was really interesting uh, coming from uh, Swiss experts The fact that drug trafficking seemed also to be uh, quite relevant as an activity conducted by Italian mafia groups in the country, which is something that did not come uh, at least as evident from uh, from the Italian, uh, Italian data. Um, the same with the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, as also Francesco highlighted before, drug trafficking is most probably the the main activity conducted by Italian mafias. And then Netherlands, as well as other countries like Spain, Romania, also Germany is is also a um, fugitive heaven for affiliate, mafia affiliates who are fleeing Italy, escaping justice or fleeing from, from feuds. Um, in the Netherlands, there is a new investigative focus, focusing on um, criminal activities, specifically again on drug trafficking. Belgium was one of the most interesting country because it's first of all, the only country out of this election that is now uh, planning or started to, to, to adopt a policing model, that is not based on the criminal opportunities, but rather on the criminal structures. So looking at the structures of this mafia, there is a very strong historical presence of Cosa Nostra in Belgium, the only country in the selection with such a strong uh, presence. Um, Spain, a high predominance of Camorra, and now I'm about to, to wrap. Um, Romania, I'll go directly to uh, Romania. I don't know why I always... Okay. Um, I will tell you in a second about Romania. Um, regarding the, the matrix, the analytical matrix that we used, we distinguish between territories, structures, and activities uh, in the way we analyzed and read, basically, the, the, the data. Uh, we distinguish venture, consolidation, and hybrid territories. Uh, um, venture territories, territories that are relatively new or better in which there is a new opportunity to conduct a criminal activity. For example, in the case of the Netherlands, consolidation territories where the um, organization is more stable and when there are activities that have been conducted for more, uh, for more time and hybrid territories. Of course, these categories are very, very loose. And again, they only offer a methodological lens to analyze this presence, this expansion. The same with the structures. We highlighted individual mobility, looking at um, individuals affiliated to, to mafia <clears throat> to the different mafia groups that tend to be strictly linked to the clan of origin in Italy and that move only to the country for specific, uh, for specific um, criminal activities or, um, for example, also to do money laundering, uh, in opposed to a clan-on-clan cross-border mobility that highlights also a more consolidated presence in the country, and clan duplicity, which is something that most probably is happening most of all in, uh, in Germany that highlights are uh Sort of really duplicity of the same clan that maintains links to the clan of origin but that replicates in the. Lice, other sorry,
1: clan. I need to interrupt you yeah. because we need to um, move on. So, uh, as uh, Lice said, we do have uh, more examples to maybe we can discuss later about Romania and why Romania is more important and interesting in a way, but I don't want to take on too much space. So, uh, we frame the data conceptually in uh, following literature on this uh, very much about uh, opportunism and the and pull factors we use the concept of opportunism um, as it is in uh, the economic uh, conceptualization of it with acting with guile and timing calculation of either social uh, and personal or economic nature decisions, but we do recognize that uh, the push and pull factors do condition the opportunism uh, of mafia activities, and therefore con- condition opportunism is inherently contextual. Uh, we have identified some factors uh, that do um, inc- that include, obviously, the favorable location for a specific business, the Spanish cost for tourism, existing infrastructure such as port, and obviously different expat communities um, enable enabling factors, and so on and so. Forth. Next uh, slide. Um, when we, uh, Alicia, next slide, please. Okay, right. Um, yeah, so essentially to finish off, um, what seems to be hypermobility to, to authorities and media, uh, Italian authorities and media, is actually high frequency. Um, and uh, the internationalization of the Ndrangheta appears to be uh, more dependent on market and push and pull factors than the spirit of conquest, as it has been described in, by the Italians most of the time. Uh, mafias abroad do not behave as such, uh, they are diluted towards more simpler forms of organized crime and they cooperate with local organized crime groups when they can and for business purposes, not for uh, power structures. Uh, and there is a split between activities abroad and structures on based uh, which seems to be the core of the transna- transnationality issue. Yes, we finished. Um, and obviously intentionality of movement uh, is often mistaken for intent, uh, but intentionality remains perhaps um, solely in the opportunistic element of mobility. And we don't have time, but just so you know, in case you wanna ask questions, last slide, we did run, an analysis of the policing and judicial cross-border cooperation. Um, we identified some conceptual and structural challenges. Um, so the way the mafia concept is conceptualized, the visibility of uh, certain of the mafia groups, uh, the uh, historical and institutional uh, role of memory and pre-knowledge and databases uh, that um, are available to uh, law enforcement abroad and in Italy. And uh, we identify some technical challenges, anything from um, the criminalization, to uh, the technical investigation, so the, the digitalization of investigation, the existing challenges with the European investigative order, for example, um, and so on and so forth. So we we'll, can stop um, this presentation now. Thank you. And for anything that you need to obviously ask, uh, we can uh, do that later. And I invite Zora to switch on and, um, yes, so Zora, the floor is yours, I'll appear again when you are about
4: Okay, thank you, Anna. I hope you can hear me well and you can see my slides. Yes, we can. Uh, okay, great. So uh, I'm very happy that actually uh, I'm coming last in this um, in this panel because I think. For now, by now, you have a very clear um, idea of um, of the framework within which my own research is actually situated. So, I've spent uh, the last four years uh, looking at the international expansion of the Ndrangheta, the Calabrian mafia. Calabrian mafia because it originates in the in the region of Calabria that you can see here circled in in red. And I've been looking at a specific case of Germany. The reason why uh, Francesco has already uh, mentioned and uh, and Anna and Alicia have reinforced again, it's one of the most interesting case studies because it sees a very pronounced long-standing and structured presence of this organization, uh, which is in Europe, um, apparently, at least for what uh, regards statistical overview, the most significant uh, presence, whatever that means. And that's exactly, exactly the question that I wanted to answer, what does it mean in concrete terms and what are the consequences of such a presence? So, What you're going to do today, because we only have 10 minutes, it's actually really zooming in Uh, into a case study, and the case study is one of the presence of the Ndrangheta in the legal economy. I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of an overview of the Ndrangheta in Germany so that you have at least a little bit of context. Then we're going to go into the case study and we're going to look at two specific activities, what I call money laundering or what is known as money laundering, but also entrenchment in the economy. I distinguish the the two aspects. I think it's very important to keep them separated at an analytical level. And then I'm going to just conclude with some food for thought, if I'm going to have the time for that. Otherwise, I'm going to share it later on. So the Nangata in Germany, we see uh, the first presence uh, of individual Nangata members already in the 60s, towards the end of the 60s. And we see the first clans forming, the first structures, the first outposts, however we want to call them, in the 70s. So this is the first reported presence that we are able to document. Uh, However, only in 2007 and actually in 2008, after a shooting uh, between Andrangheta clans that happened in the city of Duisburg in uh, in Germany, um, law enforcement and authorities more generally started to uh, acknowledge the phenomenon. And that means also to actually look into the phenomenon. And what you can see here on this chart is the alleged numbers uh, of members of Italian mafias in Germany. What you can see very clearly is that the ndrangheta stands out for having more in terms of number. Uh, what also you can see in this slide is that the increase is quite insignificant uh, over the course of the, of the past decades, And that, of course, does not mean that suddenly all the ndranghetisti moved from Calabria into Germany starting 2008. It simply means that law enforcement started to prioritize this phenomenon and to look into it. Now. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we can uh, maybe speak about this later. Uh, what I also wanted to showcase, you, showcase and illustrate here is that in fact uh, these numbers do not tell the entire story, and this is obvious. We are speaking about organized crime. We are speaking about a secretive phenomenon. But what you can see here is, uh, with the case of 2019, that the police only mapped 344 alleged members of the Ndrangheta present and operating in Germany, while the government so. Another authority, the government, was speaking of a dark field of unknown or potential uh, members that are actually active in Germany that goes up to 1,000 individuals. That is two to three times the the number that is mapped by law enforcement. If you then zoom out a little bit more and you look at uh, journalistic sources, in this case investigative platform, corrective, you can see uh, that the number is even bigger. Now, why am I showing this? Not to say that law enforcement does not their job. That's not the point. The point is that we are having some problems in identifying these people, in identifying whether they are members of the organization or not. Are they criminals or are they not criminals? How do we map them? How do we categorize them? What are these people and what are they doing really in Germany? But this is a problem that goes beyond Germany. Now, one of the reasons why we have these problems, is problematic, is because there's a very significant presence in the legal economy in Germany when it comes to the ndrangheta. And this is not exclusive to the ndrangheta. And the presence in the legal economy means that there is a disconnect, at least at a superficial level, between the straightforward and visible criminal activity and actually the disconnect between the criminal activity that is happening usually somewhere else or is hidden behind the legal front that is basically preventing or making it more difficult to actually classify and identify this activity. And that's why we're looking into into the presence of the ndrangheta in the legal economy. And that's why it's so relevant to actually really try to understand what that means. And we're gonna do that by looking at money laundering as one aspect that, most of you probably are very familiar with, and the most simplest definition simply is basically any activity which is aimed at disguising the legal origin of criminal proceeds. but you're also gonna look at entrenchment in the legal economy. Now, these two aspects are obviously interconnected, but they're not one and the same thing. So money laundering does not always result in entrenchment in the legal economy, but in the case of the Drangta in Germany, and this is not an exclusive case again, This has happened. And when this happens, when criminal organizations do entrench themselves in the legal economy, that enables them to operate with comparatively less exposure to law enforcement. That's why the numbers I just talked to you about. It allows them to integrate in local communities and it allows them finally to also build up contacts in politics. So now we're gonna first start by looking into money laundering in Germany. Uh, We know that between 50 and 100 billion euros are laundered every year in Germany. That's a big sum. Those are estimates, and that's also one of the reasons why you can read every now and then on on newspaper headlines that Germany is a money laundering paradise. And in fact, beyond the fact that it is 50 or 100 billion euros, what we can certainly uh, address and certainly document is that there are significant vulnerabilities of the German system, which basically make money laundering uh, easier, comparatively speaking, than in other countries. And I'm going to really just quickly touch upon them. Uh, three of them, which I think are very important, cash, oversight, and transparency. When it comes to cash, in Germany, there is no upper cash limit. That means that at least theoretically, this is not always the case, but at least theoretically, you can buy anything at any price with cash. So you have no limits. And on top of that, it's not only possible, it's actually quite widespread to pay in cash. So according to the Deutsche Bundesbank in 2017, 74% of all the transactions were made in cash. Now, against this background, what we have in Germany is insufficient oversight and insufficient transparency. Oversight, I'm going to just speak about tax authorities, which are the ones that are most heavily, uh, not the only one, but the one most significantly involved in uh, in identifying and encountering uh, money laundering. Uh, We see that in 2018, according to what has been uh, communicated by the union, 16,000 positions were not filled. Now, this has changed over the last years. However, still today, uh, for example, the financial intelligence units, which are dedicated or tasked with uh, fighting money laundering, can simply not um, catch up with the workload that they have. A lot of the cases, the case files are simply never processed. Same thing in the non-financial sector, we have very fragmented and inefficient oversight, especially when it comes to specific professional categories, for example, notaries, which are relevant within the discussion around money laundering. Last point, transparency, I'm not gonna go into the nitty gritty of it, But uh, land registries are not searchable in Germany, that is problematic in terms of transparency. And also, it is incredibly difficult, even at the comparative level, uh, to establish beneficial ownership in Germany. So I've, I've given you this quick overview to basically illustrate how uh, we have um, our ways or criminal organizations have their way paved into the legal economy. It's not too difficult to actually invest in legal proceedings in Germany, and those are the reasons why. And now what we're going to look at is entrenchment in the legal economy. As I said, this is not always the result of money laundering, but in the case of the Ndrangheta in Germany, it is most significantly one of the results and what we see at an empirical level here, you can see a couple of pictures of my fieldwork uh, in in Germany. I've conducted fieldwork in Germany and in Calabria, obviously, is at an empirical level, we do see that in Germany has been significantly investing in uh, the gastronomy sector. Why? Well, for money laundering purposes, obviously, but also from a logistical point of view, it does make sense because it's very difficult to um, to basically get surveillance approved uh, in um, I had nine minutes, so uh, surveillance approved um, in, in public spaces, but also legal fronts, and that's the point that is actually the most uh, important that I want to share with you, because legal fronts basically enable these organization to build up trust and social capital, which then in turn allows them to entrench in the community and to build up contact to politics. And I want to give you uh, very quickly an empirical example. Uh, and I thought if you, if, you, if you actually read this through, with not my own words, but with the, with the words of the person, in this case, a mayor, a German mayor in a German city that has been involved in such a dynamic, it could give you a more interesting perspective. So here we have the situation in which a German mayor built up a relationship and a friendship with what turned out to be later on a, a mafioso, a member of the Ndrangheta. So as you can read here, and I'm gonna maybe uh, go through this a little bit quicker as I thought I would, uh, as you can read here, the mayor basically Starts to establish a relationship with this restaurant owner. He's a Calabrian restaurant owner. He uh, arrived in the city, had his restaurant. Then he wanted to get bigger. He reaches out to the mayor. The mayor has an interest himself in making the uh, in making the restaurant work, and the community has an interest itself in making the in making the business work. What you can see is an overlap of interests. There's nothing bad in each of these interests. I mean, with uh, with exception of course, with the interest by the mafioso, but we don't know at at that point, but there is an overlap, a dynamic of overlapping interests that basically establishes an ecosystem within which collaboration does make sense. And that develops then, Further, in this case, in entrenchment in the community, this mafioso becomes very well known within the community, very well accepted, respected. Everyone knew him. And that in the last instance basically led to the fact that the mayor himself was basically developing a concept uh, for applying for European subsidies together with this entrepreneur. And then the Italian police comes in, arrests the person. He's been convicted now, in first instance, for membership in a mafia association, and it comes out that he has been uh, part of one of the most important Nrangheta families in Germany for quite uh, some time. Um, now, the, the key uh, element here is trust and social capital. Do you see here that without this element of trust and social capital, there is no entrenchment in the community and there is no contact to politics. Um, Just uh, food for thought, and I'm gonna leave this here as it is. Why is it important to look at trust? It is important for three reasons. We have established in the literature that emergence of mafia organizations have been connected with uh, horizontal mistrust, in this case mistrust between people and mistrust towards institution. We can, uh, we can discuss uh, which part of this theory can still hold true today. We have also demonstrated, however, that moderate level of trust can coexist with the presence of the mafia when we look at mafia migration. So this trust explains maybe to a certain extent Um, the emergence. It does not explain mafia mobility and migration, or at least not in all situations. And I think, and this is what I'm trying to contribute with my PhD as well, uh, we should ask the question whether moderate or high level of trust, which we find in the countries that, for example, Francisco mentioned, Switzerland, Germany, uh, can facilitate mafia entrenchment in community and politics. And we should address this aspect as well. Thank you. And sorry for overrunning for 30 seconds
1: that's okay yes exactly 30 seconds is still good okay thank you very much zora uh very clear as always so um now i would invite you all uh, alicia and francesco to join us uh in uh, in in video if not in spirit okay uh so right so we have um a number of things that are coming through the chat, some of which are just shared with Austin panelists, some others with uh, everyone, so it's a bit complicated. And we have some questions that I see already, Francesco answered to one of them uh, in the uh, Q&A. But before we go, I think we can just start with uh, one of the running themes of the chat, uh, which is uh, the data. And uh, I think uh, talking about data with uh, something uh, as elusive as the concept of Italian mafias uh, Uh, And for those of you who know me, know that just the thought of Italian mafia doesn't sit well with me um, because of the ethnicity traps that it implies. Uh, So I would ask a quick comment from... Francesco and from Alice and from Zora as well on, um, on the data, essentially, what kind of data, how easy was it to combine the data, how creative um, we need to get when we do go to the data collection uh, for this topic, and more importantly, what do you think uh, could be done better in a way for data purposes? And obviously, I re- I'll talk to this myself at the end as well. So Francesco, do you want to start?
2: Yeah, thank you. I think it's a meaningful point to, to, to open the discussion because um, the, the, the reason why we wanted to to, to do the, the research that I presented was that uh, most of research, uh, previous research and current research on math is abroad relies on case studies, which are great. They, they give you a lot of depth, and they allow you to understand a specificity maybe on a country or a region or a city, but then uh, when you want to have a broader picture, for example, like uh, answering simple questions, where where are the countries where apparently the mafias are more present, uh, we we hit a wall. And so the the idea was, okay, we have this amount. uh, And if you look around uh, Europe and uh, all the activities against organized crime, including Italian mafias, you don't have any uh, comparable data uh, set or collection also because, of course, every country has its own criminal law, and only Italy has a, a anti-mafia uh, legislation, which is very specific. So the idea was to take text reports, very lengthy and detailed reports from the Italian anti-mafia authorities, and somehow code them, as I, as I wrote in the chat, we read, and every reference to a foreign country, we, we, we reported, we, we break, broke it down, analyzed it, and And these resulted in somehow data is a a little bit more manageable and allows you to do the kind of uh, analysis that we did. Then, of course, uh, two comments to to, to close. First, of course, we provide a broad overview that uh, doesn't want to replace, but actually complement case studies and more qualitative approaches, such as, for example, Zora research, I think, complements very well with what uh, we've done. And somehow corroborates, we both corroborate each other. And uh, secondly, of course, the the analysis relies and on, on what the Italian anti-mafia authorities report. So, for example, recently I showed that recently there are there's an increasing amount of references to money laundering and uh, legal economy. Is this because Italian anti-mafia authorities are finally going after the money after more than thirty years of anti-money anti-money laundering legislation, or because the Italian mafias are increasingly laundering money abroad. I don't know. I, actually, I tend to, to 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 suggest that we are certainly biased by the perception of the Italian anti-mafias authorities. So take these results, of course, with a pinch of salt. Thank you.
1: Great. Right, thank you. Uh, and um, Alice, do you want to come in on this? Um, I yeah, well, sides, first but... of all,
3: yeah. I mean, in a way, I know we did the same because we also analyzed the reports from the Italian anti-mafia. Uh, Direzione Nazionale and um, Direzione Investigativa, so um, super long, extremely long reports, that sometimes were also not super easy to access, especially in the case of the Direzione Nazionale Antimafia. and interestingly, some of the data uh, did not match with what the prosecutors and police forces told us in the countries that we analyzed, so... Um, it, um, in terms of data access, I think it's necessary when we look at mafias, Italian mafias abroad, necessarily to talk to the police forces, prosecutors abroad, like, because of course, the way mafia, uh, these groups manifest in other countries, well, not of course, but possibly it's not the same as the one that it is in Italy. And I think Anna, and I am sure you agree with me that it was really interesting to see how many of the people we talked to Non-Italian um, forces, uh, even in a way, challenged what the Italian data were saying. Uh, interestingly, even one of the one of the data that was in one of the the reports of the Direzione. Uh, investigative anti-mafia, in the case of Belgium, uh, was in a way challenged and corrected by our Belgian uh, um, authorities, let's say, um, and uh, in, in the same up and also in a way to with, with other countries. And I think. Uh, And you can say it was not easy to to talk to certain people. In fact, in in some of these countries, we were not able to talk to police forces. Like in the case of Spain, I think Spain was was possibly the most difficult country to access in terms of primary data. Um,
1: Yeah, I'll leave leave Zora to comment on this and then I'll come up as a closure on this point,
4: if you don't mind. Thank you, Zora. Um, So I think I actually agree with Alice a lot. Uh, The important point here is that we have to uh, try to include sources that come from different origins. So we cannot just rely on one source just coming from one authority, especially if actually what we are studying is not happening in their own country. So if uh, if we're basing our study on the Italian understanding, in my case for example, of what is happening in a small village in Germany, it's just going to be very limited and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider what Italian authorities have to say about it but you should integrate this source with also the understanding that police for example prosecutors or even local just uh, local uh, local institutions have about the same phenomenon and just um, basically about this I think uh, I wanted to to uh, to to pick up on something that Francesco said, that there's a lot of case studies and uh, not much comparative work being done, and you need to do these um, these overviews. Actually, it's I find that interesting because um, when you published this uh, overview that you talked about in 2016, that was one of the reasons why I picked Germany. Right? I could pick out of this um, I could pick out of this very confusing uh, scenario my case study. Uh, however. It is also true that it's it's that case studies can be compared. So we can do comparative case studies. And maybe uh, that's the best way to do comparative work because as you said, it's very difficult for you now to do comparative study if you wanted to produce the same kind of work based on German data or on um, Belgian data or even Interpol maybe. Uh, So it's really difficult to compare these data sets because they're different. They're collected in different ways. When it comes to qualitative or mixed methods case studies, maybe a comparison is, uh, is easier. But I totally agree it's completely complementary. And I, I could see it with my, own, with my own work, how that worked out.
1: Thank you, Zora, Alice and Francesco. I think it's uh, this all speaks to um, the, pro- the knowledge production, essentially, and the way knowledge production works uh, and the way we as researchers approach this. Um, for Zora and I have been talking about doing a, pro- a project on Australia and Germany for quite a while. At some point, we'll manage eventually um, because we do see some patterns, some recording traits, but also some specificities in in the context that need to be identified. And actually the differences are the most interesting parts in a way and why they happen. Uh, But I think one one last point uh, that I can make, especially when uh, because I've I've been doing this research on mobility in Australia and Canada and uh, recently this European project. uh, It also goes to show um, in the production knowledge um, narrative of law enforcement in different countries. How much informality and how much reinforcement of each other's uh concept there is um so there is a reason why everyone is so focused on italian mafias in europe all of a sudden and the reason is because of the policy transfer and the necessities obviously of interacting at the european level and the way this the the knowledge on italian mafias is produced obviously it's contextual but it's also constantly mirroring each other at the european level so we need to be aware of that, we need to be aware the narratives are constantly uh, in a way negotiated, even across police forces and uh, the broader Europol Euro, Euro, Eurojust level. Uh, so obviously, we have uh, some questions that I'll try if you don't mind to cluster questions together and we do I'm, I'm aware of the questions that uh, Yuan Grant is asking two questions about safe heavens uh, and the interest that is shown to Italian mafias I don't necessarily believe in safe heavens myself uh, but I do know what you mean when you say that and um, there are questions um about the um, theoretical contribution which I think we did answer to in our presentation already um, and uh, questions and comments on the banking system, the German banking system, uh, for Zora and the linkages that she sees, uh, she might have seen to Liechtenstein or other countries. So I, I think it would be interesting to actually reflect. And I'm going to be a little bit cheeky here on uh, the other side so uh again one of the things that we find uh and i know that all of the panelists are agree with me and that's why i chose them eventually um is that essentially uh, when we what we call italian mafia expansion eventually because it's a push and pull um dynamics, uh, speaks a lot less about the Italian mafiosi agency than it speaks about the system. So thinking about money laundering, for example, and the cross-border dimension of money laundering, um, including the questions that have been asked, um, and drugs, which remain the main, um, let's say, um, visible uh, in a way. Um, so money laundering is the invisible one, uh, and uh, uh, drugs as the visible one. I wanted to ask, what, in your opinion, uh, what could what could we do as researchers to correct the narrative in a way? Instead of just saying this Italian markets that move abroad and do these different things, how do we actually change the narrative and say, look, they do move abroad, but their agency is actually how do we measure their agency and how do we understand the agency of each single groups and individuals within their structural opportunity? Uh, that actually can, um, can change quite a bit. And I think Zora was already speaking about that specifically, so I'll invite Zora to pick up from where she left um, on this. Uh,
4: my entire research approach is actually focused on understanding within which context uh, are certain groups able to do what they're doing. And that doesn't mean, uh, of course, ignoring completely the strategic capacity of such, of such groups, but understanding their capacity within a context. So in this sense, of course, we're speaking about Ndrangata, I was speaking about Kazanasta, we're speaking about Kamara. But what we're speaking is about the conditions that in Germany, in Belgium, in Australia, or in Canada are allowing these groups to actually so successfully sometimes, but sometimes we see also not successfully, um, um, operate in these countries. Uh, so I think the narrative is changed by actually focusing on the context uh, without dismissing completely the strategic elements, uh, but also without emphasizing it too much.
1: Thank you, Zora. Any Alice or Francesco? I don't want I don't, I don't need necessarily all of you to come in come in on this, but if you do have something to say, please. Um, no? All right. Well, we all agree, so that's that's easy. Okay, fantastic. Um, So I did have a question uh, specifically for uh, Zora and for Alice at this stage, uh, which obviously Alice um, mentioned it, but also Zora went into more details and it's on the in interest of Italian mafias in um, investing in the gastro economy of Germany, as Zora said, but we see this actually being quite a large um, type of investment. It's always, so at some point with Alicia, we were just saying, oh my God, this is just drugs in restaurants because they kept popping up all of the time. So um, uh, maybe we, we, there is something there about the made in Italy and the way in which Italian restaurants somehow are also perceived in the different countries that can help us a little bit uh, explain or at least if I hypothesize on why. Um, this is happening so Alice has done some research on food crime and on the cultural elements of that so maybe we can identify um, some food for thought yes
3: I mean as you know every time like one of our interviewees uh, was telling us about something specific about restaurants or even some cases in some involvements in food frauds etc I was always particularly uh, interested even more than the rest of the results. Uh, it is a constant in each country that we analyzed, some more than others, like, of course, Germany more than, um, for example, more than more than Romania. Um, it, every time there, we, we found these traces of money laundering activities, they were always somehow linked to restaurants, pizzeria, ice cream parlors. Um, most of in most of the cases, owned by Italian Italian companies. Um, it is, I think, when it comes to food, is one of the main um, how can I say uh, characters of the Italian identity. And I say that also thinking of my own research on food crime and agro mafia and so on. Uh, it's also what, in a way, makes Italian so well known abroad. And since we refer to the opportunism as a factor, as a, um, as a way for Italian mafia groups to expand in these countries, to have connections to these countries. Of course, they make the most of, in this case, this Italianness and the importance of the Made in Italy. Uh, also thinking of the Italian culture, uh, the, how great Italian food is. Even in the case of of the UK, even in in one of the countries in which we found um, less. Traces. I mean, we said then that the UK is a sort of black hole. It's actually not clear what's going on. But even in that case, there the, were the, the few things that we saw, they were relating to money laundering, to some investments, to the involvements of shell companies, trust, etc. but also to some, um, yeah, restaurant involvements and businesses run by... Um, um, yeah, mafia affiliates most probably. So I think it's um, it's really because, uh, as every other type of entrepreneurs, they they make the most of it and uh i guess italian restaurants abroad are they they make good profits i mean there are also so many italian restaurants for example in the uk that are not even run by italians uh, but they are exploiting in a way the, the, the made in italy so yeah i think don't, don't
1: even mention that
3: <laughs> so <this is> <laughs> no, but sometimes i mean their the food is also good most probably it doesn't have to be italian but
4: Laura yeah. do you want to come in on this Mm-hmm. Um yes just two quick points the one is about the perception of the Italians uh, which is very interesting uh, if i'm i'm of course always uh, referring to the case of germany uh, we've seen a change in this perce- uh, perception. And the reason is because these countries and Germany in particular has a long-standing uh, history of immigration from Italy. At the beginning, uh, of course, as it os- often is the case with new diaspora communities, there was a lot of prejudice against Italians. Uh, we're speaking here in the sixties and uh, beginning of seventies. I'm not saying that the prejudice is not the case anymore today, but then what happened in Germany is that the Turkish people arrived. And so basically there has been almost a change in the perception and there are very interesting studies uh, in which basically the enemy or the new uh, the new suspicious was directed to Turkish community and the Italians once slowly integrated as being, for example, the Catholics, the Christian and not the Muslim. So in this sense then, the Italians have actually quite well integrated into the German community. And it has changed also in the perception that Alice mentioned. A lot of Germans went on holiday to Italy. It was cheap, the food was nice. Um, there started to be newspaper articles uh, about how wonderful la Dolce Vita in is it started to basically build up as a lifestyle. So what you have today in Germany is on the one hand, some memory of the same prejudice. So you will still have this, oh, every Italian is lazy and basically a little bit of a criminal, but at the same time, he's actually the nice guy. Or he's not like yeah maybe maybe he doesn't pay all of his taxes but come on it's nothing nothing like the real mafia so this is in terms of perception or at least what I could uh, I could see uh, when speaking to people in Germany but also if you look at some very interesting studies there are plenty of them done on Italian immigrants in uh, in Germany the other point about restaurants which I think it's incredibly important to be made as well is. Um, uh, yes, they invest a lot of restaurants or cafes or coffee shops are used a lot in terms of investments in legal funds by the Ndrangheta, by Italian mafias, but they're also used actually um, for, um, let's say, extortion activities. So when we do see how do extortion activities in in Germany often, not exclusively, take place by, for example, imposing and forcing these restaurant owners to buy products. And that's where it gets very difficult because you don't really know exactly what you're speaking about victims or perpetrators, whether it, it is at the empirical level, incredibly difficult to distinguish it. At the analytical level, we all know what's a victim, what's a perpetrator. As at the analytical level, we know that. At the empirical level, we do see that this changes depending on the situation as well. And so um, when we see, for example, often that um, Italian associations are used, So like the Association of Calabrian Restaurant Owners, just to give an example. They are used both to uh, foster certain types of cooperation and deals, but also to identify the ideal victims uh, on which, for example, to then force products upon uh, or to ask or force a little bit of cooperation as well. And that's the difficulty sometimes when we are speaking about diaspora communities is to tease out these, um, these different dynamics that overlap to a certain extent.
1: Thank you, Zora, and thanks, Alicia. So I think in a in a way we, we do always um, reinforce uh, each other's research when we look at these issues. Uh, most of the things that uh, Zora was talking about, I do see in my research in Australia and Canada and all of that, obviously. Um, and I think it kind of speaks, again, to the same issue that we have of the ethnicity trap um, and the way it does uh, in condition authorities to sort of um, not discriminate against Italians abroad but at the same time, having to deal with the fact that if they want to research or investigate Italian mafias abroad, they have to single out ethnicities. So it's it's one of those issues that we always have um, in, uh, in this type of research. And uh, so I think we have um, some other different questions, specific ones uh, that we have here and there between the, the Q&A and the... Um, uh, and yes okay so one issue that i think is is important for all of us um, is about the longevity of our research and the longevity of the data obviously ultimately what we want to do is not to, just to picture and uh, take a you know a, a screenshot of a specific time and place uh, but we want to offer some keys to anal- to analyze um i wouldn't say future trends but to to sort of root our analysis in what could be um, a future research in a way. So whether or not we want to keep updating our data set, which is one way of doing um, uh, things in a way, uh, or we want to keep going back to the field, uh, I, I invite Francesco and, um, and Zora and Alice and myself as well to reflect on um, essentially the, the issue that we have with our data that sometimes they are, by the time we process them, they are already uh, a picture of an old reality in a way or, or a reality that is constantly dynamic. So what would be in your um, idea the kind of um, the needs that we have for updating uh, or somehow uh, keeping our knowledge dynamic on such issues? So what would be your the, the kind of things to watch out for in your research um, that you think for future research could be helpful? And uh, for Alice, obviously, we can share the answer. <laughs>
2: Okay, maybe uh, I can I can start on that. Well, the I think that in any case, the kind of research that we we presented here all together, it's it's dependent on situations that are somehow uh, in the recent past or in the past. We we cannot. It's it's, it's really not a forecasting exercise that it, we were trying to do. Then, of course, based on the results we have, we can make some reasonable guess or assumptions uh, about what will be the development. One thing that surprised me in updating the data for this presentation from the previous study is that, you remember, the previous study was 2000, 2012, and we gathered 935 references. By adding just five years to these previous 12 years, the references became 2,200. So it means that, for example, the sources and the the bias that we have, at least that the Italian anti-mafia authorities are increasingly referring to foreign countries in their reports. I think there is more attention to international presence of the Italian mafias, especially the Vangheta, but also the other. Uh, Whether it speaks about better cooperation, finally, uh, more receptive uh, reaction by foreign authorities because some countries we know they have established anti-Italian mafias units. And of course this facilitate cooperation, I guess that's true. I'm more skeptic about whether it suggests that, that there's a change in Italian mafia presence. I think that also Zora's evidence is that these are long-term processes that developed through decades. Maybe they started with migration, economic migration of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Italians back in the fifties, in the sixties. And just a few, uh, uh, Individuals involved in the mafia migrated as well, and then, of course, this developed. It is planted a seed, and then somehow developed for a number of reasons. So, I think that's one thing that interests me uh, a lot is to see that how this developed and how there is more attention to that. I also think it's, um, as I mentioned before, more references to money laundering and the legal economy are certainly. Also, the result of more cooperation from local authorities in the destination countries. That's my take. It's not that the, finally the mafias are laundering abroad. They probably always try to launder abroad, although some re- research shows that they want to launder very close to, the, to their power uh, core power units because they want to control money. Um, but that's it. So that's my idea. And of course, we plan to update and keep uh, collecting the data. So we'll see.
1: Thank you, Francesco. And Alice, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, just one thing on a note that Francesco
3: just said. It is true. I noticed the same. I started uh, reading all the... uh, National Anti-Mafia Authorities reports from 2014, so referring to the year before 2013 onwards, and I noticed exactly the same that they, the data referring to the countries, not just Europe but also Australia, Canada, the US, etc., were um, increasing. There were especially like in the last few, like two or three years, there are way more. There is way more data on that. And necessarily it is also hopefully an increased sign of an increased uh, cooperation in a way is also what we are finding in our report because we, we did find for really each country this also will from um, foreign authorities to cooperate with, with Italy. But I think, um, again, yes, these are long lasting also processes. So I don't think anything is going to change in three years or so um and often these studies they 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 offer uh even a critical lens and a methodological lens to build upon and to continue with other studies focuses on other focusing on other countries in a different time frame for for example so
1: yes thank you alice
4: zora do you want to quickly come in on this Um, Yes, so there are are two aspects that really picked my interest, and uh, I must say that when I started my PhD, I ended up at a completely different point, so uh, I I hope to be able to actually look at them a little bit more in the coming coming years as well. So, and one is um, about this trust issue that I mentioned in the end, and this idea that high or moderate level of trust can actually facilitate Uh, the presence of the mafia that has really not been explored yet and has to be explored in terms of under which condition this is happening. And the reason why I ended up thinking about that is what happens if the state is not responding to organized crime, be it for incapacity, structural incapacity, so legislative, for example, or be it for lack of intent. And very often it's a little bit of both and very often one leads to the other. It's already creating some complexity. Uh, because the least you are capable, the least you want to actually do it, because it's difficult. But what if in this context in which the state is to some extent not responding and the population trusts the state? What happens then? Because where there is no trust in institution, what is happening is that what I perceive as the state's inactivity is just the state not doing anything. If I trust the state and the state is doing nothing, I think that there is no problem here. So I think that is not a problem uh, of Italian mafias of in Germany, because the state doesn't tell me that there is one, because the state doesn't do anything. Because the state says, this is not the same as in Italy. They don't do extortion here. It's a little bit of money laundering. We don't have corruption. And the general population trusts it. So, and this is exactly what I'm trying to understand because in the end, what happens is this phenomenon of entrenchment, which then in turn, again, is basically preventing or hindering state response again. And this is the vicious circle, which I find, Fascinating, um, and uh, I hope to be able to dedicate a little bit more time. And I'm still figuring out how to do it on an empirical level, um, on that. And the second aspect is connected to what Francisco was saying, uh, because I find that very interesting. Is uh, actually I, I do think it's very important to to look at these statistics. Um, I would be very interested in uh, in doing a complementary work in which we identify. Uh, blind spots that certain authorities cannot see. And then we compare these blind spots with the statistics. So in Germany, for example, it's very difficult to identify extortions. So you don't have a lot of extortion. You end up saying that everything that happens in Germany is drug trafficking. Well, it is not necessarily. Sometimes it, like it can be. So trying to understand to which extent uh, these uh, statistics are representative, because I think they are, and where we should adjust Uh, our understanding. So those are the two points. Thank you Zora and uh, so we are bringing the
1: panel to a close and uh, just uh, my own comment on this Um, I think I have two main comments as well so on one side uh, the the blind spots the blind zones of the analysis um, I mean Alice did promise you something on Romania which never arrived (laughs) eventually but Romania was interesting um, precisely because of that because it allowed us to look at some uh, types of crimes which were corporate crimes uh, or 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 white collar crimes uh, in the field of environmental crimes especially which we didn't expect, in a way, from our Italian data. But it was somewhat uh, visible when you looked at some Romanian, um, I wouldn't say data, but some Romanian interviews, um, which weren't, by, by all means, uh, enough. They were just, you know, an, an initial uh, scoping out. But it did give us some interesting um, perspectives. And the reason why it was interesting was because environmental crime, in the form of corporate crime, including some Italian brokers, which do use uh, this type of criminality to launder money in Romania, uh, do appear in the Romanian setting because of the attention that Romania has on environmental crime, as a lacking lacking regulation. So on their side, they brought up this this interest, and on our side, we couldn't see it. Uh, but it's actually way more interesting than the 700 um, you know uh, drug trafficking investigations that we had looked at. Um, on, and so on that side. So on the other side, thinking practically about cooperation, I think was the biggest lesson that we learned when we actually went into our uh, into the practicality so surely I echo Francesco and Zora and Alice in saying surely there is more attention now than it has ever has been uh, on Italian mafias in Europe for a number of reasons that they all talked about uh, but also the practicality of cooperation is the reality of, of, of the, the everyday cooperation of the prosecutor who sends the request uh, to um, bug a vehicle that goes from Torino to Switzerland that can't find the right person to send that to and eventually loses the person in the vehicle or can't use the evidence. Because eventually what we see on the other side is that everything that ends up in a trial or in a court of law has to have certain levels of uh, you know, reliability and certain level of uh, certain requirements to be admitted as evidence. And this is the reality of the everyday life across, across border. We had some investigations that in one day, touched three different states between uh, German, Belgium and the Netherlands uh, and somewhat Italy so following this investigation from the perspective of cross-border cooperation is a nightmare so I think we should you know and the, it, there has been an immense uh, ability from everyone to, to overcome such uh, challenges so I think in a way we are in a much better position now so in, I'm hoping data-wise that in the next few years there will be some systematic uh, systematization of Europe European knowledge, and I'm talking about Eurojust, Europol, especially as a starting point that allows us to go deeper into the context of reference. Uh, so thank you very much, everyone. Uh, and I'm, uh, obviously we can't clap or do anything. I mean, we can, but no one will hear us. Uh, so um, I'm bringing this to a close. I would like to thank you Zora, Francesco and Alice uh, for being with us and all of you who have been uh, really active in the chat. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry if I couldn't address specific questions, but I'm sure everyone has taken uh, an eye on the chat and answered specific question addressed to them. Uh, the presentation will are recorded, so they will be on replay. Um, and on YouTube as well and the presentations uh, will be shared in due course. Thank you very much everyone and have a good rest of the conference.
0: Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use, there are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and... The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.